what are the ethics of the engineering decisions that we make when we're building big infrastructure? In the era of climate change, we can't not think about those bigger issues. What are the downstream effects? What are the unintended consequences of the decisions we're making? This is a very new approach. I would say, what, the last five years at the most that this has been true at Caltrans. That bill was vetoed by the governor. In his veto message for 127, he implied that Caltrans will do this anyway. Of course, we were all skeptical, but in fact, that's been the case for the most part. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Bike Talk. This is Lindsay Sturman. I want to introduce our amazing guest along with our two fabulous guest co-hosts today. Melanie Curry is the editor of Streets Blog California, which is the urbanist Bible for all things transit and bike. And Dave Snyder is the executive director of the California Bicycle Coalition, CalBike, which is the overarching coalition of all California bike groups. And we want to welcome Jeannie Ward-Waller. She is the Deputy Director of Planning and Modal Programs at Caltrans. California is so lucky to have Jeannie in this position. She has two masters in engineering and has led the growth of Caltrans Sustainability Program. And she was previously the Policy Director for not just the Safe Routes Partnership, but the California Bicycle Coalition with Dave. So welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Good morning, Dave and Melanie. So good to see you. Dave, we're kind of like looking at you because you had a bunch of questions that you were ready to Sure, yeah. I was waiting for Lindsay to kick it off, but if you want me to kick it off, I'll start. As I mentioned earlier, Jeannie, I met you under some pretty fantastic circumstances. And why don't you tell the story of when we first met and what you had been doing in the prior months to that moment? (laughs) Yes, it's hard to believe that was almost 10 years ago. I the, the trip that brought me to work in California was biking across the country in 2012. And specifically, I had this kind of break in my career. I decided I didn't want to be a structural engineer anymore. And so I biked across the country and I had the time and I wanted to make it into an advocacy trip. And so I chose two organizations, the Safe Routes Partnership, which I ended up working for, and then also the League of American Bicyclists, which is the national bike advocacy organization to fundraise for. And I organized this whole trip and biked across the southern U.S. and finished in San Francisco, and uh, which was just like the perfect place to finish a big trip like that. And had reached out to Dave and also the San Francisco Bike Coalition in advance of arriving into town. And, oh, are there local folks that we can bike with when we get to San Francisco. And so, yeah, we met up, I'm trying to remember, somewhere downtown or maybe south of the city a little bit. And you, Dave, and a couple of guys from San Francisco Bike Coalition biked us through the city, took us on this like great adventure through the city and over the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was just a beautiful day in San Francisco. And we've got these great pictures where there's no fog on the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was just kind of, for us, a thrill after biking across South Texas and through Arkansas and Florida and all these Southern states. And then we arrived, get to beautiful city. And so, yeah, that was when I met Dave. I think it was April of 2012. And from there that kicked off my career as a bike advocate and now as a bureaucrat, but still fighting the good fight for sustainable transportation. So thank you, Dave, for that memory. And also for hiring me and helping me move up in my career 
I still think back to that trip all the time and just what an incredible experience it was. And it really was kind of like my one credential for being a bike advocate is I had done this massive trip and met all these advocates across the country and basically learned how to do advocacy on the road. So it was super cool. I remember being super impressed as a civil engineer. I remember you saying that you had learned how to build bridges and how to build roads and you wanted to change your focus to helping us decide what we should build in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and really glad that someone with your skills and intellect and training wanted to join us as the group of people who were trying to change what the engineers built rather than just build it. I mean, I do think that was one of the things that I struggled with as a practicing engineer. I worked for a private firm in Boston for several years. And when you're on the job, you're just thinking about this one project and you've got a very specific role and I got to make this building stand up. I got to figure out what each beam and column looks like and what loads it's going to see through its life. And you never think about the larger implications of, is this the right building to build in this location in the first place? And, you know, obviously that's the job of city planners and architects and developers, but I was interested in those issues. And I got very interested in just sustainable building design, things like the materials that go into the structure. I thought that's where I was going to go with my career. And instead through my master's degree in the UK, it was engineering for sustainable development. I actually got much more interested in these big policy issues, these big questions around urban planning, around transportation, and really just what are the ethics of the engineering decisions that we make when we're building big infrastructure. In the era of climate change, we can't not think about those bigger issues. What are the downstream effects? What are the unintended consequences of the decisions we're making? And I think for a long time, the engineering profession really just wasn't concerned about those issues. They were like, oh, we're solving a technical problem. And that's kind of all we care about. Jeannie, are you saying you had to go to the UK to find a program (laughs) that talked about that? I mean... Is that something that they do not teach in America? I, not in traditional curriculum. I think the curriculums are changing since I was in college 20 years ago. So things are changing a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a lot more of this sustainability options, uh, environmental design. You can cross enroll in programs where you get both the policy or the ethics aspect as well as the technical engineering education. But no, I frankly spent most of my time in my undergraduate engineering courses studying material science, chemistry, mechanics, physics, calculus, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And I did have an ethics class, but it was very simplistic. We did not talk about climate change. We did not talk about community impacts or or Mm -hmm. dividing communities when we're building freeways. None of that was part of my education in engineering school. And so, yeah, I picked this program in the UK. It was a little bit random. It was a brand new program. This sounds really cool. Like this sounds like the kind of thing I've been missing as an engineer. And it just completely opened my eyes to all of the other issues we should be thinking about, which frankly, now we talk about every day at Caltrans. You know, you look at our strategic plan and it is all about people and environment and equity and the other considerations, the other benefits that we need to be thinking about when we're designing projects. And that I think is very inspiring. It's very exciting that we've come so far. And California in a lot of ways, I think is leading the country in terms of how holistically we are thinking about our work, but it's all new. It's all, it's a new approach. So I was just going to say that this is a very new approach, right? I mean, I would say, what, the last five years at the most that this has been true at Caltrans. 
the 2015 strategic plan was a huge sea change in terms of really bringing these issues into our department and embracing them. And it takes a long time, as I'm sure we'll get into in this discussion, for it to get from acknowledging at that strategic policy level that these are issues that we care about to actually building it into everything we do, institutionalizing it, making it part of the culture, rewriting the design manual and changing our standards, which Dave has been super passionate and pushing us really hard on. It takes a really, really long time to change all of our practices and procedures and ways of doing business. I've been at Caltrans now for years, and I've seen a huge shift in my time. I'd like you to get into some of those shifts that you've seen and some of the constraints that you face. And maybe you can contrast your role as an advocate when you were at Safe Routes and the Bicycle Coalition with your role now as Deputy Director at Caltrans. When you were working with us advocates, you had no constraints with regards to what authority you had to push for solutions. You could push for the exact right answer and the exact right process. The constraint was that you weren't in charge of the final decision. You know, you could Mm -hmm. only influence decision makers. Well, now you're a decision maker and yet you still don't have the perfect process. You're still expanding highways and stuff like that. So what are your constraints now? You have more authority, but you can't exactly turn this ship around immediately. Why does it take so long? What are those constraints? Yeah, such an interesting question. And it might help, Dave, if you have some specific things in mind that you want to talk about. But I think the constraints are many. And this goes for all of us, frankly, like even as an advocate, yes, I had a lot of authority over my own ability to advocate and the things that I wanted to focus on, but I still had to work with coalitions of other advocates. You build power in coalition. So you're always working toward compromise, frankly, in terms of what your priorities are and where you get a big group to work together to push collectively. And also we negotiated things like the active transportation program. We were in the mix on Senate Bill 1. We were negotiating with the road builders and the folks on all sides, the transit advocates, all the local regional agencies that were in the mix on that too. So even as an advocate, you obviously are very mission driven and you have your priorities, but you have to constantly be working under the constraints of how do you actually get policy done to be really effective. So constraints in a different way. And I think at Caltrans, I am in a influential position now, which is, you know, which is terrific. I feel very blessed that I've been able to come in and build a lot of strong relationships and be successful and move up in the organization. But I still (laughs) have to work with all those same stakeholders. And we're trying really hard to expand the stakeholders that we work with and the folks that we reach out to and listen to. Like equity is a huge priority for us right now. So figuring out how we reach underserved communities and understand their needs better and make sure that that's a big part of how we're doing our work differently is important. I also have to work with an executive board. You know, I'm only one member of our executive board. We have 25 or 30 people on our executive board, including 12 district directors. Um, And I report up to our chief deputy and our director. So I don't have the ultimate authority at Caltrans, obviously. I'm just one of many decision makers. And so we're still building compromise and working towards solutions that work collectively. And that's not even to mention, we (laughs) report to the governor's office. We are given our authority by the legislature. So 
the power that they've given us is very important. We operate under the oversight of the Transportation Commission and their decisions, particularly around what gets funded really influence our decisions. And then, of course, you have partners all across the state. We own the state highway system, but the state highway system runs through cities and counties and regions. And all of those partners and the decision they're making about what they'd like to see on our system also plays a big part. So I've been pushing really hard, particularly on our planning program, our rail and transit program, our local assistance program. All of those are under my side of Caltrans. So we're making a lot of changes, but a lot of those changes still are just institutional policies and procedures that take time to manifest in projects. You know, in some cases, our big projects take decades to plan from <laughs> inception and an idea through construction it takes decades to get there. So we're trying to be more nimble. We're trying to find ways to do things like quick builds and implement more changes to the roadway at least in terms of pain, we can do those sometimes just through our maintenance projects, which our maintenance program is developed every year. Routine maintenance, more basic things like filling potholes and pavement overlays, but that is an opportunity to restripe and do some changes that can be done just with our maintenance field crews. So we have opportunities and we're looking for those opportunities. Can I ask, going forward and being nimble on thinking about new projects is important, but what about the projects that have been in the pipeline for a century? Okay, maybe that's a little exaggeration, but it does take a long time. So Caltrans still has a lot of projects in its pipeline that are adding lane miles and increasing highways. So how can that be addressed within the constraints that you're facing? We're having some really interesting conversations about we think of them as sort of our legacy projects. And, you know, there's a good reason that those projects are in the work. It does take a long time to build big infrastructure. And sometimes you really do need to replace or rethink what a roadway is going to look like. And we need to take time to do that. We need to talk to the communities. We need to do that engagement. Pulling the funding together to be able to get those projects done takes years and years so we need to do good planning work, and often that will take a long time to result in an actual project. So I am of the mind that we should be looking critically at every decision that we make, and we need to be looking at it through the lens of our policy priorities today and where we know we need to go in the future. And so every plan and we have corridor plans for every state route. Some of them do date back many years, especially the rural routes don't necessarily get updated for a long time. So there are a lot of rural routes around the state that are still on the books to make those like a expressway, <laughs> go from two to four lanes and make them higher speed, higher capacity facilities. We are having a serious conversation about just retiring a lot of those plans. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, in the more significant routes where we really are completely redoing the plans, you know, we're creating what we now call comprehensive multimodal corridor plans. So you're thinking not just about the state highway, edge of right of way to edge of right of way to like, let's treat this as a corridor, including adjacent rail or transit, including adjacent local roads. In a lot of cases, even including the land use adjacent to the roadway, which is, 
again, a new thing for us to be thinking about what are the land uses that folks are actually trying to access in this corridor. It's so important to be looking at all of those things differently and considering a whole host of multimodal solutions to addressing the growing needs in a lot of those corridors. And so we need to get much more sophisticated. And we're looking at things like managed lanes or transit-only lanes where we're doing more HOV or we're doing pricing or we're trying to run more transit on our system. Um, That's one way to get a lot more capacity out of the road without widening it. In a lot of corridors, we are looking to implement those solutions. But in cases where it's totally unrealistic to add capacity to the existing roadway, how can we do more adjacent to the highway? Bikeways are certainly one option. Running more transit on the local street. Just improving connections across our facility Mm -hmm. could potentially take traffic off the highway in a lot of cases. Because some people are just getting on the highway because they need to go one exit and get off. Well, what if we improve connections across our facility and take that traffic off the highway? So we're having conversations, challenging all our old assumptions, expanding the tools in our toolbox. And ultimately, that will result in a lot of those projects looking very different. So those conversations are happening today. And again, it takes time because it's not just for us to decide. We have to work with the community. We have to work with the local and regional agency. We have to build consensus around what we want to do in those locations. And that's really important. And again, bringing a community that's most impacted by that project or by that corridor into the conversation is one of my biggest priorities right now, making sure that we are making those decisions and hearing about the needs of the communities that have been most impacted by our facilities, I think is critical. Let me, Jeannie, give you some kudos for some of your work around shop, making sure that when Caltrans does a repavement or rehabilitation project, it includes bicycle and pedestrian safety facilities to a much larger degree than it did in the past. You are very familiar with Senate Bill 127 that Senator Weiner advanced years ago that would have required Caltrans to always include such safety improvements unless you had a really good reason not to. And that bill was vetoed by the governor. One of the reasons why we support the governor and oppose the recall here at CalBike is that in his veto message for 127, he implied that Caltrans will do this anyway. Caltrans will improve the shop process and have a complete streets process that is something to be proud of. We don't need this bill. And of course, we were all skeptical. But in fact, that's been the case for the most part. And I think you must have had something to do with that at Caltrans. The shop process now is way more likely to include bike and pedestrian safety improvements. And you've done a great job at making it more transparent so that the public can have some influence in those projects from the moment that they are conceived. So congrats on that. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about the changes at the SHOP program and what's different now than was the case five years ago when Senate Bill 127 was very necessary proposed reform? Yeah, and Dave, you and I worked on this issue when I was at CalBike. (laughs) So I was deep in the weeds on the SHOP. (laughs) And SHOP, for those who don't know, we're using acronyms here. SHOP is the State Highway Operation and Protection Program, which is Caltrans' biggest source of funding. And it is for major rehab and repaving and 
We do a lot of work, fixed culverts, just a whole range of different things with this funding, but it's really intended to be used to maintain and operate the state highway systems. It's a multi-billion annual program, really represents the bulk of the work that Caltrans does. So you and I, Dave, I think we saw this as a key place to focus because so much of our state transportation funding is being spent through the shop. And why aren't we taking the opportunity to, as we're repaving or rebuilding bridges or doing major rehab on the roadway, why aren't we using that opportunity to add sidewalks, add bike facilities, make the roads much more safe and comfortable for people walking and biking. And even back in 2016, I was going through the shop line by line and saying, where are we missing opportunities? and trying to push on Caltrans from the outside at that point. In terms of the progress we made, it's really massive. We're looking at our shop projects now completely differently. And every project does now have to take a close look and say, is this an opportunity to improve bike and pedestrian facilities? And if it is, what are you doing? And is what you're doing meeting the plans that are in place? First of all, is there a plan? And if so, what is the facility that's in the plan? Are you building that facility or are you building something different? What engagement has been done around this project with the local community and what do they want to see? And so you have to now answer all these questions as you're looking at a project and really scrutinize it as an opportunity to build a complete street. So that is completely changing the process. And that starts from the inception of the project. The shop is adopted every two years. We adopt the next set of projects that are coming. So I think every cycle of the shop into the future, we'll see more and more of these projects and we'll get better and better at it as we go. I'm always careful to say this is new for us. So don't expect that you're going to suddenly see a protected bikeway on every project, but we are looking for those opportunities and we're pushing for them. And so we will see some of them and every cycle again will get better. Particularly, I want to give big kudos. I want to pass the kudos up the chain to our director, um, Toksa Mashakin, who came in at the time that that veto statement was released by the governor. And so a lot really rode on his shoulders to help push us forward. And he took it very seriously. And when the 2018 shop was getting adopted, he said, how much complete streets are we doing? How much money are we putting on it? I think at that time we said, oh, well, we're going to just set aside 50 million because a lot of these projects are pretty far along. So we're looking for an opportunity to like carve off a little bit of money. And he said, no, no, let's do 100 million. And so we did a reservation at that time. We went back to the districts, went back to the drawing board to a sense and found another several dozen projects that we said, hey, there's a lot more we know we can do on these projects. And so that additional reservation fund was used to add facilities to a bunch of products almost ready to go very far along in the pipeline. So that was huge and really set the bar. Okay, we're going to scramble, we're going to make it happen. And next time we're going to put the rules in place to make sure that we just are looking for every opportunity to build these facilities. So it's amazing. And now we have folks all across the department working on active transportation and complete streets, which I think it's harder to see that from the outside, how much institutional change has happened, how much we've changed our culture and oriented towards these issues. But when I came in again, four years ago, there was a little complete streets office, a handful of people in our planning department that were like the experts on complete streets. And anytime there was a question from the engineers, they had to run over to these planners and get them to solve the problem. And now we have engineers, we have folks in every district. We have vastly expanded our planning office. We have a much bigger office now. We've got folks in our sustainability program. I mean, we have a safety office now with the bike and pedestrian safety focused unit. So there's folks all across the department now that are working on active transportation and complete streets. So that institutional change gives me a lot of hope. 
it means that it's not just somebody like me coming in and trying to run around and keep track of these issues, but that there are people all over who are just totally committed to this full time. So that kind of institutional change is really what will make the biggest difference over time. Next question. You talked about how you have to work with a lot of different agencies and you have a lot of different stakeholders, the Transportation Commission, and a lot of that is dictated by statute and the fact that you have to do what the director says and the director has to do what the governor says. There's an area, though, where I don't think those constraints apply and Caltrans isn't taking your authority and taking advantage of this governor's support of active transportation. That's in design. We've talked about this. Caltrans design rules are, according to the local partners that we work with, the biggest obstacle to safety on their street, frankly, across the board especially when a local street is in Caltrans's right-of-way because it crosses a freeway or intersects with a state highway, but also on any local street because in most cities, the local engineers rely on the Caltrans design manual for their streets. And if you talk to your design department and mention how these standards aren't appropriate for lots of local streets, they'll say, well, but these are for state highways. Our state highway system has to have its special standards. And that argument doesn't fly because not only do local agencies rely on that for their local streets, a lot uh, Caltrans highways are in fact local street. They're main uh, street. Are residential schools, past elementary schools and senior centers. Yeah. And the standards really need to work for every kind of street, for every kind of person. The law requires you to consult with local governments in making your standards. And that's the end of it. The law just requires you to consult with local agencies. That's all it does. And so Caltrans can make the standards that you want. And yet your standards, Caltrans standards, are at the back of the pack when it comes to comparing California's rules with other rules around the country. Other states have much more progressive standards for safety. Even the federal government, the AASHTO, the American Association for State Highway Transportation Mm -hmm. Officials, and the Federal Highway Administration have standards that allow an agency to put in a 10-foot travel lane as a matter of normal course in order to put in a bike lane on a busy arterial with two or three lanes in one direction. Being able to narrow 11 or 12-foot lanes to 10-foot is enough to put in a bike lane. And yet Caltrans's design rules say that if you want to do anything narrower than 11 feet, you need to go through this really difficult exception process. Another example is the Federal Highway Administration's planning guidance about what kind of bikeway to mm-hmm. select when you're designing a street. And the Federal Highways guidance was adopted by a team of engineers from state highway departments, from local highway departments, very professionally researched and backed by a lot of data about what makes it safe and what makes it comfortable for people to ride bikes. And Caltrans didn't adopt that document. Caltrans amended that document for local use to, frankly, allow some insane facilities saying that a regular unprotected bike lane is an appropriate facility for a street with a 45 mile per hour speed limit, which is to say 50 to 55 mile per hour speeds. It said that you can have a shared lane with no facility whatsoever for speeds up to 40 miles per hour. It's insane. And that insanity can be reversed by Caltrans overnight. That is not a long process. 
you do not have to take every little design to the CTCDC and the California Traffic Control Devices Committee and get their approval. You've chosen to adopt a process that gives the California Traffic Control Devices Committee the authority to approve designs when that's not what the law requires. Tokes Omishakin could use his knowledge about what's safe to copy and paste the design guidelines from the NACDO guide and present it to the CTCDC as information saying, we're going to adopt this. We're consulting with you now. What do you think? And regardless of what they say, you could in a matter of months completely transform Caltrans Highway Design Manual and make it something to be proud of, make it something that is at least as good as what the federal government says and what Mm -hmm. our city transportation officials say. What is stopping Caltrans from changing its design rules so that local engineers can make safer streets without having to go through a long process? We should have warned people this was the real bike nerd section of the podcast. We're going to go deep. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I, I can put I, it. I'm just teasing you, Dave. I mean, I know this is an issue that you are super passionate about and clearly are an expert in. And I don't want to speak for our chief engineer and our division of design folks who I have a lot of respect for and work very well with. And they care deeply about this issue, too. But I will say in a moment of defense, California is an extremely litigious state. And I think that is one of our biggest constraints. <clears throat> And like changing anything overnight, we don't change design standards overnight. As much as it seems like it's easy and it's all in our control, we do have to be careful. And that's part of why we are so conservative. But I don't want to spend time defending against what you've stated, because I think you're right. We hear from local agencies often that they're frustrated with our design manual and they'd like us to use something better. And especially when they have to cross our freeway, an underpass, a local street goes across the freeway. That little section of local street is technically Caltrans owned and they have to come to us and get an encroachment permit. So when that happens, we do often review their local street design for using our standards. So it is an issue. We recognize that. And it's something that I've been in a lot of conversations with our design division chief and our chief engineer and even our deputy for maintenance and operations, who also plays a role in this because his unit oversees all the permits. So we have had a number of conversations about this. So we recognize the challenge. I would put it back to you. I think there are a lot of other options than saying Caltrans rewrite the design manual tomorrow. We are very engaged in the national conversation around Ashto and Ashto creating a brand new design manual, which at the national level, super wonky, but they call it the green book. It's the design standards nationally. They're completely re-envisioning the green book. They're going to completely rewrite that with these issues in mind. Maybe the conversation at Caltrans is, hey, let's just adopt the green book. We don't need our own design manual anymore. It's not meeting our modern needs. Let's go do that. Or your points about NACTO are important. We have in our design manual said that local agencies can use NACTO or they can use their standards. It's just, again, when they cross our facility, that there are still the nationally required minimums that we're looking at for things like lane width. But we're having those conversations, Dave. And I think the walk and bike technical advisory committee, which you've participated in and is a super helpful advisory committee of local agencies and advocates and engineers that are working closely with us and advising us on a lot of our policy decisions, 
There's a design subcommittee of that group that has been incredibly useful in helping us work on some of our bikeway standards, for example. So we're making some progress, but I hear your frustration. I think there's a lot of work to do, but I don't think just us rewriting our standards has to be the solution. Let's talk about a whole range of options and think outside the box in terms of what that looks like. Because I think there's a lot of opportunity to do things really differently and we are open to that. So I think that's a conversation and your challenge is a good one. I'll take it back to my colleagues. <laughs> my engineering colleagues. (laughs) I hear you talk about nationally required standards, and I've done a little bit of research in that, and Caltrans's standards are worse than the nationally required standards. If you adopt the nationally required standards, we'd be better off. Like I said, let's have a conversation about it. Those issues don't fall into my purview. I work closely, obviously, with my colleagues on the engineering side, but I think it needs to be a conversation with them, but I think we're open to it. Another thing we've talked about is maybe there's a design manual or a set of standards that are for freeways and a different set of standards that are for highways that are main streets or local arterials. Because you're right, it doesn't make sense to oppose freeway level design standards to every local facility where people are going to be walking with their kids. You need to be looking at those differently. So I think that's another option too. You just have two manuals. But I defer to my colleagues in design to make this decision. And just to take it out of the wonky, put it in the perspective of human being. A particular circumstance is in Pleasanton, where there is an extremely important bike connection between two parts of town that crosses a 580. And the local agency wanted to have a bike lane on Hacienda Boulevard that crosses a 580. Let me just say, I think in these specific examples that you're thinking about, the district director's have a lot of authority. And I think a number of our district directors are very passionate and really care about working with the community and putting in the right facilities. And so I think Dina Eltswansi, who's the district director in the Bay Area, she would be very interested to have a conversation with folks about some of the specific project examples. So I would work with the district. And well, the district said no. This is Hacienda Boulevard crossing 580. That's the shoulder that the local agency wants to turn into a bike lane. Those are 12-foot lanes, which Caltrans requires in such circumstances. No national standard says that you have to do 12-foot lanes. They requested 11-foot lanes so that they could add three feet to the shoulder and turn it into a proper bike lane so that it's reasonable to ride across 580. And their request was rejected. So that would be solved by changing the design manual to allow for 11-foot lanes over the freeway. Super easy solution. And it's hard to expect a local engineer who has to worry about litigation to approve an exception to the design rules. But it's a lot easier for Caltrans to change the design rule. And that's a situation where someone's going to get hurt and killed on that highway. And a lot of people are going to say, no way am I biking on that roadway next to 50 mile per hour traffic on a tiny little narrow shoulder. You're really denying people the option of biking and making it dangerous through something that could be changed by changing a digit in the highway design manual so that it conforms with the feds. Super easy, right? <laughs> I, no. I wish it was as easy as you think it is from the outside. But, Understood. Uh, Understood. There's a lot more that goes into it. I appreciate the passion and let's keep talking about it because I think yeah. there is openness. And honestly, as the federal guidance and standards change, I think that's really helpful to us. I think we look at the same research that they're looking at. 
We look to them often for leadership on these issues too, because some of this is really new to a lot of our engineers. So it's helpful to see those changes. And I'm serious that if Ashto adopts a brand new design manual and they update that in the coming years, maybe the easiest course of action is to follow their lead and start using those standards. So I think that's a conversation that we're very open to having and we should continue to talk about. Thank you so much, everyone. This has been fascinating. Thank you for the invitation. And I care so much. Starting my transportation career as a bike advocate, this is obviously a, an issue I'm super passionate about. So I appreciate the invitation and love any excuse to catch up with Melanie and Dave. <laughs> it's always fun to get into the weeds with Jeannie. <laughs> Well, Jeannie, I just want to thank you too and say that I'm thrilled and I hate it when people say proud of because it's not like I did anything to be proud of, but that's the way that we say that I'm proud of what you've accomplished there. And I very much admire how you've managed to balance your passion with a degree of discipline and restraint that gives you the respect of your colleagues and the ability to make change. So I know I want you to do more than you're doing. You want to do more than you're doing. <laughs> and I know that you're doing your best to balance competing objectives and for a better and safer world. So I thank you for that. Thank you, Dave. You definitely played a large part in my success. Back to our meeting in San Francisco 10 years ago, but definitely hiring me at CalBike. And Dave and I used to have exactly these conversations. Even when I worked for him, we would argue about what the policy solution was. So this takes me back to all the time we spent together trying to figure out what bill we were going to try to push on Caltrans. I miss those healthy debates. So this has been super fun and thank you. And Melanie, thank you too for your work. You seem to always keep a close pulse on what we're up to and what the Transportation Commission's up to, what the legislature is up to. And we need folks like you daylighting that because I appreciate being inside and knowing how much is happening. That it's really hard for us to, to share that. And we try, but we're not very good about it. So having folks like you that can shine a light is, is really important and helpful. So thank That's you. That's great. Well, we're all really lucky that you and your team are at Caltrans. You've certainly given me plenty to write about during my <laughs> career at Streets Blog because there's a lot of change happening. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's only going to get better. Keep an eye on us. We're okay. Going places. <laughs> Do it. Cool. Thank you all. This has been great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye, Talk. This episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. <laughs>